We continue in chapter 23, and this chapter really gives us an indication of what David's life was like as a fugitive in the Judean desert. We saw in verse 13 where it said, V'yitalech ba'ashev yitalech, literally meaning that he went wherever he went. That is, he has no set plans. He doesn't know where he'll be the next day. He's constantly on the run, depending on the information he gets about his pursuer, King Saul. So let's see what happens next now during David's tule in the desert. Verse 14, which means, and David stayed in the desert or in the wilderness, in the mitzadot, which means the strongholds. Mitzadot could mean big rocks, maybe mountains. That's where he would stay. So the verse says he stayed in the desert or in these mitzadot, which means that either he would move around from one location to the other, Sometimes he'd be in the Midbar, in the wilderness, sometimes in the Mitzudah. Or it may be that he split up his men between those two places. And of course, when we say Midbar, desert, we are talking about Midbar Yehuda, the Judean desert. And the verse continues now to give the name of the desert, Vayeshev bid Midbar Zif. So that's the name of the desert, Midbar Zif, which of course is in the area of South Hebron, near Ma'on, and there are all kinds of mitzudot or fortresses in the Zif wilderness. We'll see them as we read on. There's mitzudat Chorsha, there's mitzudat Engedi. So he has a lot of hiding places to choose from. And the verse continues, And Saul searched for him day after day. But God did not deliver David into his hand. So we see this verse as a general summary of what went on while David was a fugitive. We see that since David was moving around and didn't remain in one place, Saul couldn't find him. Of course, that's the simple reason, Alpiteva, the logical reason why Saul couldn't find him. But the real reason was Mishamayim, as the verse concludes, because God did not deliver David into his hands. That's what the verse is telling us. God didn't let it happen. But think for a minute about Saul's obsession here, this D-book, to chase David around that way. He has nothing better to do. Doesn't he have a kingdom to run? Okay, verse 15. Vayal David ki et And David saw that Saul had come to kill him, or literally to take his life. V'david ba zif So David was in the Zif desert. So simply put, as the Mitzudat David explains it, David saw that Saul is trying to kill him, so he stays in the Zif desert where he has more options to escape. Rabbi Kahana has an interesting insight into this verse. It opens like this, and David saw that Saul is trying to kill him. What do you mean David saw? That is at the beginning, when David first ran away, he figured, okay, I'll be living a difficult life in the desert, a lot of suffering, I'll be isolated, I won't be with my family, I'm just getting myself out of the way. And by doing so, he thought, I won't be in danger of Saul and his army. He'll leave me alone. But now David sees, Vayar David, what does he see? He sees that this isn't the case. And Saul won't be satisfied until he kills him. And he'll look for him everywhere like some buried treasure he's got to find. So that's what it means, Vayar David, and David saw. That is, he understands now that he won't have a minute of rest. He'll be in constant danger. He'll be pursued all the time. So it's not just a physical suffering of living in the wilderness, but he's going to be chased down. That's what he sees. That's what he now realizes. And now that he understands that, that he'll have no rest and he'll constantly be in danger, this starts to depress him a little bit. It kind of weakens his faith, his emuna. 
and he's beginning to despair a bit. And that brings us to our next verse. And Yonatan, the son of Saul, arose and went to Choresh. And Yonatan helped David find strength in God. So Yonatan makes the trip to Choresh and he gives David chizuk, the verse says. What does it mean chizuk? Why does David need chizuk? Because like we said, he's having a crisis in Emuna. Even the great ones like David, they can also have their moments. They can also break. They're human. And so it could be that maybe David sent a letter to Yonatan and that's why Yonatan came to meet him at this point. And before we see what Yonatan says to David to give him that chizuk, to encourage him, let's try to understand, you know, David's emuna crisis. It's not just the physical torment of being chased down like a dog in the desert, but what's going on in his mind is that this whole divine plan isn't working. That's his crisis in emuna right now. He was anointed by Samuel the prophet as king. And look at him now. He's worse off than ever before. So he doesn't get the plan. Where's the divine scheme here? So let's see what words of encouragement Yonatan gives him. And notice scripture calls him Yonatan, the son of Saul, comes down to David. Why throw that in? We know he's the son of Saul. Because again, it shows Yonatan's humility and the concession he makes to David. Even though Yonatan is the natural heir, he forfeits that privilege to David. Okay, so let's see what he says. Verse 17, Vayomer alav altira. And he said to him, have no fear, because my father's hand won't reach you. And don't worry, you're going to eventually reign over Israel. And when you become king, I'll be your number two. I'll be your second in command. I'll be right there with you. And then Yonatan adds, And my father knows it too. That is, he just can't overcome his Yetzirah, but he knows it. But this is really so touching and, and tragic at the same time. As Yonatan tries to rebuild David's bitachon, trust, in Hashem, first he says, have no fear, al And the Mitzudat David says that Yonatan is saying, Hashem imcha, adam. Hashem is with you. What can mere man do to you? And that means that my father, he won't get to you because Hashem is with you. And here's the really sad part, that when you're king, I'll be your right-hand man. Now that's tragic because it never happened because Yonatan died in battle before David became the king. Maybe Yonatan's proposal would have worked out if you had this ideal combination of the house of Saul and the house of David combining somehow maybe through Michal, of course that never happened. Saul fights David to the end. In the end, of course, Yonatan ties his fate to that of Saul rather than joining David. And of course he can't be faulted for his tragic decision to, to remain with his father. But obviously this decision exacts a very heavy price. Notice also that Yonatan, he says to David, and you will be the king, and my father knows it. So we see that at this point, Yonatan knew that David will reign after Saul. See, up to now, he wasn't helping David because he knew David would be the king. He helped him because it was the right thing to do. David was being unfairly treated by his father. So he was on David's side. Not because he knew David was anointed, but we see that at this point in time, Yonatan knows David will be the king. How is that? Well, we'll see as we continue learning that Shmuel the prophet, at some point before passing away, he didn't take his secret to the grave. And we'll see at the beginning of chapter 25, two chapters from now, that Shmuel passes away. And obviously it was around that time that he passed away that he publicized the anointing of David. Because we'll see that in that same chapter 25, that Avigail, she will also mention that David, he will surely rule that is, more and more people know about it as time goes on. In any case, we see that Yonatan strengthens David's hand 
And he continues in verse 18, And they made a covenant before Hashem. And that means they reaffirmed the covenant that they had made previously. And the fact that it says, Hashem, before Hashem, the commentators say that this time they made the Brit before the Urumim and the Tumim, and that gave it kind of a divine sanction. And finally, the verse concludes, and it says, And David stayed in the forest, and Yonatan went home, he went home. So why does the verse mention this, that David stayed in the forest and Yonatan went home? Isn't that kind of obvious? Well, it teaches us that even though Yonatan has taken David's side through all this, he's not going to rebel against his father outright in the open and join David. It's not like he's going to join David now in the desert. He goes home. He obviously felt that being with his father, he's still doing some important things. He's fighting the enemies. His father is running a from kingdom. And so he's not going to openly rebel against his father. He returns to his life. As we saw in chapter 20, Yonatan finds himself in a very tough situation, torn between his loyalty to his father and his love for David. Now, eventually he is going to fall in the war at Mount Gilboa against the Philistines together with his father and his brothers. Is that a punishment for not staying with David right here? Who knows? Okay, so that ends the meeting between David and Yonatan. Maybe that's the last time they saw each other, but it's also likely that Yonatan came to visit his friend on several occasions, and only here it's recorded. And now David has to face his next adventure in the Zif Desert, and it says in verse 18, And the Zifites, that is those people who live in Zif, went up to Saul in Givat Shaul, and they said like this, David is hiding amongst us in the Metsuda, in the stronghold, in the forest, in the hill of Hachila, which is south of Yeshimon. So they're running to Saul and they're giving him an exact location where David is. Now these Zephim, these people from Zeph, they're from the tribe of Yehuda. But that doesn't mean everybody in Yehuda is loyal to David. You're always going to have your informers. Maybe they want a reward. You could bet there's reward money out there for whoever turns David over. Maybe there's a wanted sign, wanted, dead or alive. Maybe they're just jealous of David, even though he's a fellow tribesman. We'll see in chapter 25, this Naval guy is also from Yehuda. He's very jealous of David. So it's not like everybody in Judea is on David's side. Yeah, most are, but you always have your stinkers. And here they are, these Zif people informing on David. And besides that, just like there are people from the tribe of Binyamin who are loyal to David, there's plenty of people from the tribe of Yehuda who are loyal to Saul. Now, getting back to the verse, notice that the Zephim say, David Mistateri Imanu, he's hiding with us. That is, he's with us here in the Zif desert. And you can see they're pretty gung-ho about it to turn him over because it says that the people of Zif, Alu El Shaul, they went up to Saul. They're running to him to inform. It's not like they're being forced into it. They're not doing this out of fear, but they're taking the initiative. And we'll see that they're really malicious about it. In the next verse, they say to Saul in verse 20, And now, come your majesty, which means to all your heart's desire, or whenever it pleases you to do so, please come down, come down. They say it twice. Of course, he's coming down from Givat Shaul to the area of Hebron. He's going from north to south. So they say, Red, come down, and we will deliver him into the hands of the king. So you can just feel the hypocrisy and the chanufa, the, the way they're kissing up to Saul here. Your majesty, the king, they're just so eager to do this. And according to the Barbanel, 
They're saying to Saul, What does it mean to all your heart's desire? They're saying, however you like it, if you want to come down to capture him, that's great. And if you don't choose to come down to us, no problem, we'll capture him and we'll bring him to you. And you know, generally speaking, this obedience towards the authorities, it's obviously very common. It's not just here in the Bible. It's not just amongst the people of Yehuda. Because in general, people like to kiss up to something strong, to the establishment, to something solid. But it becomes a bigger problem when you make an ideology out of it. Like they think they're doing a mitzvah. They think they're big tzaddikim turning David over to Saul. And today in Israel too, you have people who also justify turning Jews over to Jews or cooperating with the authorities, even if it means that well-meaning Jews might get punished. And they're very ideological about it. And this is what they say. They say like this, because we are such ardent Zionists, such strong Zionists, and that the Jews have come back home after 2,000 years to form a state and to form a government. The Jews finally have their own government and security and army and police, etc. And Jewish sovereignty is such a magnificent concept that that makes those functionaries automatically holy. The army, the police, that is the very fact that there's Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel and we have our own government, you have to obey it no matter what. So no matter what the Shin Bet does, no matter what the police do, you should comply because this is a holy process of the redemption that the Jews are back home. And so you can inform to the Shin Bet on Jews who may have taken revenge on Arabs, etc., against the law. You can report them to the authorities because it's a holy government. I know it sounds insane, but there are plenty of Jews who feel that way and it's a real ideological issue for them. There's a very famous passage in the Talmud, which talks about how great unity amongst Jews is. And to prove it, it says that in the generation of Ahab, of course, Ahab was a wicked king, nobody fell in any of the wars of Ahab. While in the generation of David and Saul, when the people were much more righteous, soldiers fell in war. That is, even though the generation of Ahab was immersed in Avodah and you had Jezebel running the show and all this paganism, Nobody fell in the wars of Ahab because why? There was unity, that there were no informers. There were no stinkerim out there. And how do we know? Well, if you recall what it said in the book of Kings, that there was a prophet Ovadia. And when Jezebel was trying to kill the prophets of the Lord, the prophet Ovadia, he hid a hundred prophets in a cave and he would sustain them secretly and nobody ever formed on them. No citizen of Israel in the days of Ahab informed on those prophets who were hiding in the caves. They didn't run to Jezebel. She was murdering the prophets. Nobody ran to her. Nobody squealed to her about the whereabouts of these prophets. So in that merit that there were no informers, nobody fell in the wars of Ahab. But in contrast to that, in the generation of David and Saul, soldiers fell in wars. Why? Because there were informers amongst the Jewish people. Jews would most share, they would turn in other Jews. And the example they give is right here in our story with the Jews of Ziph, or trying to turn David over to the authorities. So that's what the Talmud says. And you could speculate why in Ahab's generation, they didn't inform on Jews. And in Saul's generation, they did. I'll tell you why. Because Ahab, he was an evil king. Everybody knew it. So they didn't listen to him. They weren't obedient to the government because Ahab and Jezebel had an evil government. So nobody was in a hurry to turn over the prophets of Hashem because it certainly wasn't a mitzvah. Ah, but Saul, he's a tzaddik. He's righteous. You got to obey him. You got to follow his orders. And that's probably the reason why there were informers in the days of Saul and not in the days of Ahab. 
Okay, so we see that the Zifim are snitching on David and Saul is on his way. And in our next class, we'll see how David escapes another close call. And we'll see that even though the verse says that Hashem did not deliver David into the hand of Saul, it's not like you blatantly see Hashem's hand in this. Everything occurs in the most natural way. And that's the true wisdom and the true emunah that you see Hashem's hand even though you're making all these efforts.